Good morning. So good to see you all here today. You know, it, it seems like just another Sunday, but it never really is, is it? We're always in motion. And while I may see all of you next week, we all go out into our own little worlds. In fact, um, last night we were talking just amongst ourselves as a family. Um, it's really uh, only for those little worlds that we're ultimately responsible, because we can't be responsible for the whole world. We can certainly pray for it, but at the end of the day, you can only reach out to those who are right around you. And so I trust that uh, even this morning you'll be encouraged and equipped toward that end, whether you're uh, moving, uh, traveling, or facing the prospect of being promoted to glory, where we'll all gather again someday. Uh, I, I was on a walk a couple of days ago, and I was uh, thinking about our passage for this morning, and I'm so grateful that we're at a church that um, uh, uh, does expository preaching. Um, what, what is expository preaching? Well, expository preaching is, is when you take a, a text of Scripture and then you, you expose its truth, thus expository. You uh, expose the truth of that text within its immediate and overall context, uh, which means that no matter where you are in the Bible, you can always get something out of it. So you get a couple of verses like Fred did last week and, and you're uh, fed uh, a veritable feast. Or, or you get to the passage where we find ourselves this morning at the end of Luke 3, and you got to drill through some bedrock. But you know there's water underneath it, and it comes gushing out. So what a, what a blessing. Well, speaking of, of that, how, how to get through the bedrock, uh, either here or in any passage, it's always good to um, ask a couple of questions of the text. The first one is, what is it? And the second question is, why is it here? What is it and why is it here? Concerning the first question, what is it, helps us to understand the passage according to its grammar or, or the word mechanics, the stuff that if you're a part of my generation you didn't learn in grammar school. And then uh, by its genre or its style, whether it be a, a poetic literature or prophetic literature or narrative or some such thing. As to the second question, why is this passage here? Uh, that helps to identify the, the purpose of the passage and, and that purpose in relation to the overall purpose of the book. So as we come here to the end of Luke chapter three, uh, we're gonna ask these two questions of the passage before us and in doing so, and, and here's the main point, for this morning. In doing so, we're gonna see how this passage makes powerful statements about the identity of Jesus as well as our identity in Jesus. The identity of Jesus and our identity in Jesus, which are important because Concerning uh, the first uh, matter, uh, it makes us more certain about Jesus, especially who he is and what he did. And then as to the second, it makes us more certain about 
ourselves in a world that is so good at teasing out all of our uncertainties, whether it has to do with the world within us or the world around us. Now, before we read this passage, I I want us to begin by working at answering this first question. What is this? Well, we're looking at the end of Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, and we're taking it down to the end of the chapter. And what we have here in terms of its genre or its style is a passage that consists of a list of names. Uh, We refer to it as a genealogy or, or a family tree. And it's set within the context of an historical narrative. Uh, Now, an historical narrative is based on fact, which means that the names of this genealogy um, are real men who lived in real time. They are historical persons. So as we read this genealogy, we need to keep in mind that each name represents a man who, to one degree or another, was known and loved by family and friends. That's always helpful when I'm looking at my own genealogy and recall that my grandfather Paul, who was born over a hundred years ago, uh, my third great-grandfather Abraham, who was born over 200 years ago, my sixth great-grandfather Johannes, who was born over 300 years ago, my eighth great-grandfather Peter, who was born over 375 years ago, were all living, breathing, feeling men whose lives then are connected to mine now. Now, in terms of grammar, this passage reveals that the emphasis of this genealogy is really not on the genealogy. Uh, Now, to be sure, in in, in terms of a style, it is an historical record. And in terms of size, it is complete. Uh, You can tell that, 77 generations, uh, which reminds me of, uh, I was watching that PBS program, uh, Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates, Jr. And they had Fred Armisen on, whom you may remember from Saturday, Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, SNL. And uh, Armisen thought that his grandfather was uh, Japanese. Gates dug into the genealogy and found out, no, he wasn't Japanese. He actually changed his identity. He was Korean. Gates sends a team to Korea. They do some research there. Uh, Gates presents Armisen with his Korean genealogy that goes all the way back to 60-something B.C. It was huge. It's huge like this one before us. So grammatically speaking, the emphasis of this genealogy is not on the mechanics of it, but the subject of it. And that subject, of course, is Jesus. And we know that the subject of this genealogy, or rather the emphasis of this genealogy is Jesus, because his name there is rendered in an emphatic fashion that radiates not only throughout this passage, but on into the one before it and the one after it. So if, if this was anybody else's genealogy, eh. if this was anybody else's life, uh, ministry, eh. but this is 
Jesus' genealogy. It's Jesus' life. It's Jesus' ministry, which makes it supremely important. In fact, this emphasis on Jesus in the passage reminds me of the book, and I think I've mentioned this book on Sunday mornings before. Uh, Burke's, Burke was the author, Burke's Peerage. Now, nobody picks up Burke's Peerage to read it because of what it is, because nobody goes to a three-volume set of genealogies just to read them for that sake. No, people read Burke's Peerage because of who is in it, which are the aristocracy and the royalty of Great Britain. That's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it important. And Jesus' genealogy blows away the vaunted status of any genealogy in Burke's. So let's read verses 23 through 38, and in doing so, Keep in mind uh, the historicity of it. This is the Bible. This is not Tolkien's Cimmerillion in which all the genealogies of Middle Earth are found. And keeping in mind its supremacy. This is about Jesus and not the uh, comparatively pedestrian house of Windsor. So read with me here, beginning in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mothat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janae, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Matthias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, the son of Jonan, the son of Ritza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mothat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matotha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hetzron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jerob, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And with that, I go to the bottle. Mm. Yeah, I knew I'd need that. So, uh, 
our reading reveals a number of different things. I'm sure there were names that you recognized, a lot of which you probably didn't recognize at all. But there are a couple of of emphases worth noting, and they're both at the front end of of the passage there. First, um, the emphasis on when Jesus began his ministry. You see it there in verse number 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, why is Luke careful to mention Jesus's age? Well, because it validated Jesus as a man. Uh, It put him, for his time, squarely in middle age. It it marked him out to be mature and responsible. But not only that, it connected Jesus to other Old Testament notables. Uh, Since 30 years of age was uh, the point at which a priest entered service. Uh, It's when Ezekiel became a prophet. It's when Joseph uh, began working for Pharaoh. It's when David ascended to the throne, all at the age at or around 30. So Jesus was the right age to launch his ministry. It's also worth noting uh, that the emphasis uh, on Jesus being the supposed son of Joseph. Again, take a look at verse 23. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, why did Luke put it that way? Well, because it was supposed that Jesus was Joseph's son. I mean, Joseph was the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, and he was the man in the home who raised Jesus up. But Luke also put it that way because while it's supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph, and for legal purposes, he clearly was with all the rights, responsibilities, and privileges appertained there too, Jesus was, he was really the son of God. In fact, this is Luke's nod to the virgin birth, as well as a reinforcement of a point he makes back in chapter two where Mary is asking of her boy gone missing. You remember this from just a few weeks ago. This is chapter two, beginning in verse 48. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus replied, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And he wasn't referring to Joseph's place. So while Joseph was the supposed father of Jesus, Luke subtly invites his readers to find the first person of the Trinity as the true and ultimate father of Jesus. So, by way of recap here, what what is this passage? It is a genealogy. It's seated in human history. It's comprised of real people. It's epic in its scope. But more than that, it's a genealogy about Jesus in the way that Christmas is about Christ. Not just the season of good wishes, not just the smell of fresh balsam and hot wassail and a burning fire, not just the traditions of family and food and presents. It's about 
Christ. Christ uh, Christmas is about Christ, who he is and what he did by way of the incarnation. That's Christmas. And in the same way, this genealogy is all about Jesus. It's not intended to be reduced to an outline like many have done, uh, compared to other genealogies in the Bible like many have done, uh, analyzed on the level of a dissertation like hundreds have done. Now, that's not to say that these things can't be done or shouldn't be done, but this genealogy, the, the main point, the focus of it, the intent is for it to be all about Jesus. Which leads us to the second question concerning this passage. Why is it here? Well, for one thing, it's here to support the overall purpose of the book, which you'll recall from chapter one, verse four, is so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, and specifically, what's there on the front of your bulletin this morning about the good news of God in Christ Jesus. But second, this passage is here to support the overall purpose of this section in which we're working, uh, which involves pulling the spotlight off of John. In fact, notice how Luke leaves John there in verse 20. Locked up in prison. So he's taken John and moved him right off the stage and turns it, that, that spotlight, squarely on Jesus. In Fred's passage from last week regarding Jesus' baptism, in our passage this week concerning the genealogy, and in Jackson's passage for next week concerning uh, Christ's temptation. In each of these passages, the spotlight not only shines on Jesus, but it accentuates him as son. Son, in our passage, son of man, verse 23, and son of God, verse 38. In fact, son is a term that's used uh, 77 times in this passage alone. So the passage is emphatically about Jesus and Jesus as son. That's why this genealogy is ordered in the way that it is. Not from the usual uh, past to present. I was looking at some genealogies this week, even my own. They all start with who's the oldest guy in the line and right down to the present. But Jesus starts with him at the top, him at the present, and works its way down, emphasizing his sonship in David's line of royalty, in Abraham's line of promise, in Adam's line of humanity, and in God himself. And this is why this genealogy is located where it is, right in the middle of the narrative, and not at the beginning where you'd find most Hebrew genealogies, thereby connecting it with the crucial role of Jesus' sonship uh, expressed at his baptism in the passage before and in his temptation in the passage after. So how does Luke stitch together these three accounts with the common thread of Jesus' sonship? Well, notice in the baptism account there in verse 22 that God affirms Jesus as my beloved son. My beloved son. 
In the genealogy, Jesus is identified as the son of man, beginning in verse 23, right to the end, and ultimately as the son of God, verse 38. But as the son of man, Jesus identifies himself with Adam, the first man who was also notably affirmed by God back in Genesis chapter one, verse 31, but then notably rebelled against God in chapter three, Genesis three, verse six. The effects of which lingered on in each person uh, down and throughout every generation right to our present. In the temptation account, uh, which we'll look at next week, Jackson will take us there in chapter four, Jesus, whom we also know as the second Adam, stands up to the adversary who provoked that first Adam to rebel. But notice here the aspect, there, pop into chapter four, notice the aspect of Jesus' person that the adversary attacks. Chapter four, verse three, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Verse nine, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for the angels will guard you. You see, the adversary challenged Jesus' sonship because he was convinced of Jesus' sonship. It was his greatest threat and it signaled his coming defeat. In fact, here's just how convinced the adversary was of Jesus' sonship. You go down in chapter four a little farther, verse 30, 41. And we read about demons confessing, you are the son of God. And then Luke says, because they knew that he was the Christ. And then beginning in chapter eight, verse 26, we read about a demon pleading in a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So Satan and his minions never doubted the fact that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. But on the flip side, and this goes to show just how insidious sin really is. On the flip side, here's just how convinced God's own people were that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. And before you lift yourself up above them, like I do when I read the Bible and think about my more enlightened self and how we in the 21st century know so much more and are so much clearer about things than these first century people. Just think about all the times this week that you have failed to do what Jesus said. How you have failed to honor Christ with your words, with your action, in your heart. Uh, you have failed to rely on him for his help and his comfort. And there he is, right there, with all those things for you. We turn our backs. Well, here's just how convinced God's own people were in that day that he wasn't the son of God. After publicly performing miracles, a fulfilling prophecy even in their midst, their response in 421 was, is this not Joseph's son? <laughs> and then at 429, they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. By the end of the book, 
It's the fact of Jesus' sonship that amazingly leads to his death. Beginning in chapter 22, verse 66, we read this. The chief priests and scribes said, "Uh, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man, that is the second Adam, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, implying that he, in fact, was the Son of God, because that's a place of the Son of God. So verse 70, they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am? Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And so chapter 23 begins, when the whole company of them arose, they brought him before Pilate. So, on the one hand, it is the uh, fact of Jesus' sonship, his identity as God's son, that leads to his death. But on the other hand, it's, it's the fact of Jesus' sonship, his identity as God's son, that leads to our life, right? As we recognize and embrace Jesus for who he is as revealed in this genealogy before us. The son of man, or as we often sing, the true and better Adam, as well as the son of God. And as we recognize and embrace Jesus for what he did, showing his commitment to stand with sinners in baptism and against the adversary at his temptation and ultimately his crucifixion. When we recognize and embrace Jesus on those terms, then here we go. Jesus' identity becomes our identity. An identity that is sated in grace upon grace rather than judgment. An identity that's sated in the free gift of righteousness rather than death. And an identity that doesn't exacerbate our insecurities but eliminates them. Here's how Paul put it to the church at Rome. I'm not going to read the whole passage. It's uh, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. It runs down to about verse 21. But uh, notice as I read how uh, Paul employs the term grace and the term free gift concerning God's righteousness to us or our right standing before him. So the passage begins in 5.12. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, that includes you and me, because all sinned. Now down to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, then much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, the first Adam. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, the first Adam, death reigned through that one man, then much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the second Adam redeemed the sin and the shame of the first Adam. He brought the first Adam into right standing with God. I was brushing my teeth this morning. I was thinking about that point. And I, I may have this wrong, but I think I've got it right. I'm sure somebody will correct me between services if it's wrong. But uh, Pope John XXIII took on the name John because no pope had taken it for centuries. And the reason they hadn't taken that name is because... Uh, centuries before, a pope had utterly disgraced it. Think of the most disgraceful name in, in your memory that you would never name one of your children. John took that name for his own. And his intention, as I uh, understand, is to redeem the name. He wanted to redeem the name. And as a result, I think, I think Pope John died in the early 60s. He was part of Vatican II. Two more popes have taken on that name for themselves. Remember Pope John the 24th in 1979, 80, and then his successor, Pope John Paul. Redeemed that name, brought it to a place of, uh, of uh, admiration and acceptance, and that's exactly what Jesus did. That's what the second Adam did for the first Adam. I mean, we were disgraced, and we had no hope of moving forward. And Jesus came in and righted all the wrongs, expunged all the sin, completely forgave us. So what does this mean? It means that in God's Son and by his abundant grace, we can receive the free gift of righteousness or right standing before God and as our identity in that standing, our, our, our identity in Christ grows, so should our Christ-likeness, since we too are sons of God. In Galatians 3, Paul wrote, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And then in Galatians 4, Paul continued, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit is actually the spirit of Jesus. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I mean, th th this is remarkable. In Christ, we who were once, by Jesus' own admission, sons of the devil and doing his desires, John 8.44, are now sons of God and referring to him in the most intimate way. Abba, Daddy. This means that by way of God's Spirit, 
We have been transformed, not reformed. Can't take what's there and rework it. We've been totally transformed by his alien righteousness, made into a person that we could not have otherwise become and grafted into Jesus' genealogy where we stand in right relationship with God the Son as well as God the Father and anyone else who's grafted into his lineage. Which reminds me, that the, the, the church is not a commodity. The church is family. We share a common father. We relate on family terms. I'm reading through the book of First Timothy right now. Came to the outset of chapter five. We think of each other and treat each other like father, mother, sister, brother. We, we manifest a common set of family characteristics. TV producer Larry David is well known for his impersonation of Bernie Sanders, especially during this last election cycle. In fact, uh, I saw Bernie on television say, Larry David does a better version of me than I do of me. That's my humble attempt. (laughs) Bernie. But about a year ago, these two men who've really never had anything to do with do with each other, learned that a reason for Larry David's spot-on impersonation, and heretofore they, they had no idea of this, they are related to each other. They are distant cousins. They share the same DNA. And in a spiritual sense, so do we who are in Christ. We share a common spiritual DNA that should cause us individually and together to manifest joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's how others can tell that we're all part of the same family. And at, at the top of the list, and with this I'm going to close, at the top of the list is the characteristic of love. In fact, Jesus himself said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Well, just as I have loved you, that's how you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, thereby clarifying and making more certain the identity of Jesus in our world, among those whom we engage and evangelize. But then it goes on. All people are gonna know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, thereby clarifying and making more certain our identity in him. How beautiful. Thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Teach us how to love each other. Lift us to the joy divine. Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we're grateful that having disgraced ourselves, you made a way back into the family. And you did that by your son, Jesus Christ, who did for us what we could have never done for ourselves. Help us to treasure that great gift 
of inclusion in your genealogy that extends not only through this life, but on into eternity. Uh, and all that it brings with us, we, we can uh, offload our insecurities. We can become more certain of who we are in a world that, where identity is really up for grabs. We can be sure of our identity in Jesus. So, Lord, help us toward these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.